The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. When people come back after the break, you know, it's a, it's, it's a good sign. <laughs> Consider the alternative. Okay, so I'm now just going to move fairly briskly through a big chunk of material. And then I'll pause for breath and, and we can talk about it. Uh, I find it actually goes best if we just sort of move along. If you have a specific question uh, or something I'm saying just seems completely wrong or you didn't catch a word, feel free to stop me, though. Um, Okay, good. And then Andre, where's Andre and his question? Yeah, great. I, I'm going to address that a little later after this section, So, but if I don't, just windmill it. Okay, great. Okay, great. Andre asked a great question about implicit memory and what we're actually trying to do as we become increasingly mindful. All right. So let's talk about the brain, right? This is the technical specs, if you will. Uh, it's about three pounds, tofu-like tissue, 1.1 trillion cells altogether, 100 billion or so of which are neurons. This is more or less what a neuron looks like. It's like a little on-off switch. The inputs come in mainly at the left side as you face the screen. Those things that stick out are dendrites in the cell body. The moment-to-moment summation of all the inputs into a neuron, uh, and typically a neuron makes about 5,000 connections with other neurons, all right? The moment-to-moment summation of all those inputs determines whether it fires or doesn't fire at any moment. And a typical neuron will be firing about 5 to 50 times a second. So events that occur on a time scale of a millisecond, a thousandth of a second, uh, determine whether this little on-off switch fires or doesn't fire. If it does fire, a signal ripples on down its axon, uh, which is myelinated with fat. Myelination is like insulation the um, brain tends to myelinate cortically from the back toward the front, so we don't get complete myelination of the prefrontal cortex typically till the late teens or early 20s, which explains impulse control problems among youth um, as one of many factors, I'm sure. All right, and then at the very end, uh, when a neuron fires, uh, it ejects little bubbles of neurotransmitters Generally, some neurons make purely electrical connections with other neurons, but the majority of neurons uh, release neurotransmitters at their, if you will, their firing tips. Uh, And then those little bubbles of neurotransmitters cross over the synaptic cleft, this little junction between um, a transmitting neuron and a receiving neuron, uh, and then are taken up by the receiving neuron uh, through these molecular structures on the receiving ends of the dendrites, okay? To put it in scale, uh, physical scale, uh, if you imagine a single, or imagine a single hair, that's not that hard, uh, roughly five uh, cell bodies could be lined up side by side in the width of a human hair. Roughly 5,000 synapses could be lined up side by side in the width of a human hair. In other words, the gap between neurons is so tiny that these little bubbles of neurotransmitter molecules that are released can cross over that gap very quickly and be taken up. Um, good. So I was going to say something about that I think... Oh, the receiving end, the molecular structures, the proteins that create the physicalness of the receiving end 
of a neuron are the most molecularly complex known region in the entire body. Um, there are a hundred or more different proteins that form the receiving docks on the dendrites that receive neurotransmitters. I visualize the picture at the top of the painting at the top of the Sistine Chapel, you know, Adam's finger reaching out to God's finger, if you will, right there at the synaptic cleft, you know, humankind and the divine. Anyway, in terms of the receiving end of the dendrites, um, that receiving end has been a real target of evolution over the last uh, several million years. So, back to the specs. Um, Because of that activity, just imagine it, right? 100 billion neurons making roughly 5,000 connections each on the average. Uh, Some neurons will make 30,000 connections, like in the um, cerebellum, uh, you know, where a lot of the motor activity, the brain is occurring, although that's also a basis for a lot of embodied cognition. Some neurons will make 30,000 connections with other neurons, right? So, if you have... Five, uh, pardon me, if you have 100 billion neurons, about 5,000 synapses each, that's roughly 500 trillion synapses. And if you've got neurons firing 5 to 50 times a second, a fair amount of that firing is just noise. But uh, when the firing rates increase or decrease, it sends signals across the synaptic cleft. So in the time it takes you to take a breath, a single breath, probably at least a quadrillion or more signals moved through your own nervous system. Just think about that. A quadrillion bits, zeros or one, of information moving through the nervous system with every breath. Because of that great activity, the brain, which is only 2 to 3% of body weight, uses 20 to 25% of the metabolic supplies in the blood, notably glucose and oxygen. The brain's always on 24-7. It's really quite interesting that people who are asleep or even in a coma are consuming roughly as many metabolic supplies in the brain as someone who's in the middle of an intense game of chess, right? Or argument with their spouse. (laughs) Or whoever else they live with. Um, So it's always on. It's like the refrigerator, you know, just just ready for instant activity. Um, It's interesting, just the last point there for complexity. uh, If you have 100 billion switches that can be either on or off, So the total number of possible states of the brain is 10 to the millionth power. In other words, if you think of all the possible combinations of each switch, on or off, okay, that is 10 to the millionth power, which is one followed by a million zeros. So to put the number of potential states of your brain in perspective, the number of particles in the the universe altogether, this huge universe, right, been expanding for over 13.5 billion years, is estimated to be only 10 to the 80th power, one followed by 80 zeros. Literally, the brain is the most complex physical object known to science, more complex than a supernova, more complex than the American healthcare system. (laughs) Right? It's that complicated. Okay, so here we go. It's even more complicated than my talk. Okay, so this is the most complex slide I've got. Uh, when you talk about the mind and the brain, it really helps to, yeah. I'm sorry, I just had a quick question about the firefly. Um, the, it's a brain cell, right? A quick question about the firefly. Is a brain cell, an, is, that, is the green light it's on? Yeah, I think it's on. Okay. Thanks. Is a brain cell um, the same thing as a neuron? 
Great question. Um, so there are 1.1 trillion cells altogether, only about 10% of which are neurons. The rest are support cells called glial cells, astrocytes, things like that. They perform a lot of scaffolding functions. It was originally, they are, they, they are predominantly the white matter of the brain. The other white matter of the brain is uh, the myelin, which surrounds the, the wires, if you will, that connect neurons to each other. Some of those axons, by the way, are really long. For example, axons that reach from the base of the spinal cord all the way, if you will, uh, wiggle your big toe, or at least one of them, all right? Could the sensation of that toe wiggling uh, traveled up and down an axon that's about three feet long that stretched uh, from the base of your spinal cord all the way out to the tip of your toe. Okay, so anyway, that's the so-called white matter. It was thought that the white matter was not very important, um, and that's probably the basis for the uh, old uh, adage that we only use about 10% of our brain. There's no way in the world uh, Mother Nature would evolve a brain that's that big, okay, that um, is at the upper limits of the design capacity of women who can both bear children um, and walk upright. All right, because you can't. There's a limit in the size of the birth canal. She would. Mother Nature would not have built a brain that big, which sometimes has led to catastrophic outcomes in childbirth. All right, if it did not have a lot of benefit. So it's been, in fact, understood increasingly that those support cells, those glial cells, also can uh, modulate information transfer moving through the brain. So they don't just perform a metabolic function like managing neurotransmitters and keeping the brain healthy altogether, but they can also modulate information processing. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Sure. For, you know, for so long uh, we've been told that as that we get a certain number of neurons Right. And that as we age, we might even lose some. And then the information came out that what's actually happening is that we're not producing more n- neurons, but we are capable of producing greater and greater connections for all this traveling that you're talking about. Could you just speak to that for, for a moment? Great. You, you put the ball in play very articulately. Uh, okay, so let's see. First off, uh, neurons themselves, all right? So uh, it was originally thought that the number of brain cells altogether, neurons and non-neurons, that we had at birth were all we ever got, okay? And on a typical day, we lose about 10,000 brain cells, okay? Um, That's why by the time a person's about 80, they have about 3 to 5% fewer brain cells than they had on the day they were born there is normally what's called cortical thinning. I'll get later on to how meditation practices, as as well as probably other practices, can um, halt cortical thinning and enable us to not lose so much cortical mass, which is pretty good news. That was the original idea, right? Um, The bad news, I must tell you, is that if every day we lose about 10,000 brain cells, a single drink, one beer, a glass of wine, Shot of liquor also kills 10,000 brain cells. I always hate this part. <laughs> Not always, but, but my point about it is that, for example, you know the way alcohol works is that it uh, deprives uh, neuro- brain cells of oxygen. I mean, the buzz is the feeling of brain cells drowning. <laughs> right? 
So <laughs> think about that <laughs> the next time you have that second or third glass of wine. There do seem to be some protective factors of alcohol, relaxation, uh, red wine sometimes, da-da-da-da-da. On the other hand, uh, you know, don't kill, kid yourself. Um, you know, alcohol kills brain cells. So uh, normally we lose brain cells to death. Now, for example, uh, the second part of the story is that uh, like a three-year-old, when, when you were three, you had about three times as many synapses inside your head as you do today. Now, it's not that you were smarter when you were three, but that uh, a lot of those synapses uh, withered away for lack of use. Uh, as I get to a little bit later, mechanisms of neuroplasticity, um, basically in the brain, it's, kind of, it's called neural Darwinism or survival of the busiest. In other words, synapses that get a lot of traffic, they stay alive. Synapses that don't get much traffic wither away and fade away. So a way to think about it for me visually is to imagine, uh, let's say, uh, uh, a large area after a forest fire has gone through. Maybe a year later, there are a bunch of little saplings, let's say. Come back 50 years later, there are probably a tenth or 1% as many saplings, but now we have a bunch of mighty trees with tons of twigs and branches that have proliferated out. And the same thing happens in the brain. Okay. So that, that part's true. We definitely build more synapses as we, as we learn over time. Additionally, it's been discovered literally just in the last five years or so that there is something called neurogenesis, which means that the brain is actually birthing brand new brain cells every day. And I love the fact that neurogenesis was originally mainly discovered by studying songbirds and investigating how in the world they could create and remember new songs, right? So um, uh, it, it's the case that, to use a term, I don't mean it pejoratively, the lower down you go in the evolutionary tree, the more neurogenesis there is, whereas the further up the tree you get, including now, let's say, humans, the less the neurogenesis there is. Because neurogenesis is a fairly if inefficient way in terms of metabolic um, consumption, uh, supply consumption, for enabling the brain to learn new things. Right? If you have to build new brain cells, that's a lot of work. But on the other hand, if you could just have a couple of neurons stitching together, that's nice and efficient. See? Okay. The hippocampus is the primary part of the brain that's been discovered where neurogenesis is in humans. That's a part of the brain that's involved in, no surprise, making new memories. So it's kind of nice to have new neurons if you want to make new memories, particularly for context or visual spatial memories. To jump ahead to a point I'll get to later, uh, London taxi cab drivers at the end of their training have a thicker hippocampus than they had at the beginning of their training. Okay? It's not that People with big hippocampi, because there are two of them, there are two of most things in the brain, although the convention is to speak of them in the singular. It's not that people with bigger hippocampi, uh, hippocampuses are inclined to be taxi drivers, although maybe that's a little bit of the truth, but it's the training itself actually builds out neural structure there as they learn you know, visual, new visual spatial memories. The main thing that promotes neurogenesis, particularly in the aging brain, is exercise. Exercise is a good thing. So, you know, maybe the takeaway here is if you're going to have that glass of wine every day, be sure to go to the gym the next day. Okay? All right, great. So now... Uh, 
Everyone asks about that. So, I, you know, this is the topic, right? You could, I could go so far afield so often, bounce out, come back. So I'm going to do this really quickly. Uh, different drugs affect the brain in different ways. Um, I think probably the most awful drug for the brain are the, is speed. You know, meth. You just look at meth, pictures of meth addicts. You've seen these pictures probably before and after. It's really quite startling. Uh, marijuana does seem to have some fairly subtle effects on the brain, particularly in uh, you know massive quantity. I had a young adult man who was a client of mine, and I you know got high every day. And I once asked him, "So, so how much do you smoke? You know, how much?" He went, "Oh, I don't know, 15 a day." It's like 15 tokes, man. That's a lot. He looked at me like I was a wuss. No joints. So some people don't, you know, smoke a lot. At those upper levels, you know, you're really having a lot of impact. Generally speaking, marijuana tends to have fairly subtle effects, you know, cumulatively on the brain. Alcohol has a lot of effect, you know. In terms of the long-term effect on the brain, I'm not aware of anything about that. Um, most people don't get addicted to hallucinogens, so the dosing isn't that high. Although I do have friends, including friends who shall be nameless, who are meditation, Buddhist meditation teachers with huge hearts who spent years taking acid every day. Oh, yeah. Like, how do you do that? But they did. So there you have it. Back in the day, you know, back in the day. As they say in medicine, good judgment comes from experience. And experience comes from bad judgment. (laughs) So I try to put my bad judgment in perspective. Okay, let's move on. Um, Keep me out of these (laughs) shoal waters here. So move back into blue water sailing. Okay, the mind-brain system. This is the most conceptually dense slide I've got. Mind and brain. Uh, when you use words like mind, immediately you step into major philosophical and religious traditions. Very complicated. I find it's useful to bring things really down to earth when you're dealing with murky, murky stuff. For me, the mind is the flow of information through the nervous system. That's, a, that's, that's not a, a unique view to me. That's a pretty common standard neuroscientific view at bottom. You know, In other words, the heart moves blood around, the nervous system moves information around. Most of that information is forever outside of awareness. This has some major implications for practice. We tend to privilege what's in the field of awareness because it's what we're conscious of, right? Out of sight, out of mind, right? Most information flows, most of mind, as I'm using that word here and defining it, is either temporarily or vastly, permanently, outside of the field of awareness. So it's the seeds we plant that grow beneath the waterline that really shape implicit memory and shape our inclinations and our natural responses moment to moment. There's very little we can do in practice moment to moment, right? Once it arises, you know, the best we can do is to be with it. But over time, we can plant seeds and uh, create inclinations that increasingly move us in one direction or another. And we do that in the territory that's outside of awareness. Uh, I wrote a review of a, a nice book called Wrapped, which is about attention. I don't mean wrapped like wrapping packages, but wrapped like really attentive. I wrote a review for Tricycle about this, and in a sense I was saying how I think mindfulness is overrated. Uh, and I'll come back to that point later. There, my, the mindfulness is important, but in the Dharma it's not the be-all and end-all. That I think it's kind of been taken to be a lot uh, in some quarters you know, in Buddhism and as mindfulness has spread more into the mainstream. And we'll come back to that later. Okay, so that means that 
apart from hypothetical transcendental factors, God, or Buddha nature in some cosmic sense, or the Dharmakaya, or the ground, or the nameless, whatever, apart from the hypothetical transcendental X factors, the mind is what the brain does. It's neural reduction, it's, it's dualism, mind and brain are distinct, Informa- immaterial information is distinct from material hardware. In other words, mater- matter here is the pattern of pixels here, or light and dark, photons, that's matter, okay? The information that that pattern in matter conveys is distinct from the, from the hardware itself. Think about a, the Beethoven's Ode to Joy, Okay. That's a pattern of information. That information can be carried by a number of possible physical material substrates. A CD, radio waves whose frequencies are being modulated, FM radio, Um, you know, neural uh, patterns inside the head as one can kind of hum internally the... People pay me not to sing, you know. (laughs) Whatever, you know what I mean. All right. you see the idea? It's, it's kind of a simple idea, it's very, but it has profound implications. Uh, a computer, you know, the information in a computer is immaterial. Uh, it's a reduction of uncertainty in a fundamental sense. That's the nature of information. As Gregory Bateson defined it, it's a difference that makes a difference. All right? That immaterial information is carried by a material substrate, a hard drive, RAM, you know, pixels on a screen, and so forth. In the same way, the nervous system is moving information around. Uh, Now, when I say, by the way, the brain um, is, you know, the mind is what the brain does, uh, I really mean that more broadly. In other words, no brain, no mind. You don't have a brain, you don't have a mind. On the other hand, the brain is the proximally sufficient condition for the mind. Because the brain needs a nervous system, nervous system needs a body, body needs nature and culture, both in present time and over evolutionary deep time. All right. So when I talk about the brain as the source of the mind, I really mean that as a shorthand for describing a whole larger system. It is so interesting that the um, scientific uh, rigorous analysis of how the mind arises in the brain, the body, nature, and culture is completely, and ultimately in a quantum sense, you know, arises out of quantum fields, is completely consistent with the Buddha's analysis of interdependent arising. You know, right? Things co-arise interdependently. So let's see how that happens in terms of the brain in three fundamental facts about um, the brain and the mind. The first fact is that as the brain changes, the mind changes for better or worse. We got some caffeine and sugar and water on the left. We have a concussion on the right. Uh, one of the cooler things I did, uh, I've done with all this neurodharma stuff I've been doing lately, was gave a talk to a bunch of, to a boys, a really posh English boys school, 1,100 boys right out of Harry Potter, filing in with coats and ties behind the head. I was completely panicked as an American. I just did not want to suck. And I had my 15 minutes with these boys, you know, fourth to 12th grade, all just sort of staring off into space. They're better behaved than probably a bunch of American boys. But anyway, I figured I got to get their attention, so I put up the slide and I've kept it ever since. Okay, so fact one, as the brain changes, the mind changes. It does so in different ways. For better, as I said, you know, a thicker insula 
That's a part of the brain that, that tracks self-awareness. It, that's associated with more empathy and um, more capacity to tune into oneself. If people have more prefrontal uh, activation on the left side compared to the right side, a greater asymmetry of activation with a left-sided advantage, that's associated with more positive emotion, probably because the left prefrontal cortex puts the brakes on negative emotion. So you build up the brakes, right? You get less negative emotion, more positive emotion. Okay? For worse, intoxication. You know, brain cells drown. You know, we, after that first little buzz, we start feeling kind of stupid. Um, you know, if we get uh, a constant chronic releases of cortisol. Cortisol is like an acid bath on the hippocampus. Uh, people who, uh, the more stressed you are, the smaller the hippocampus becomes over time. Uh, in extreme cases, people who are victims of very, very serious stress and trauma could have a hippocampal volume that's shrunk by 25%. Right? And that's pretty... People always ask, can it be recovered? No studies have ever been done on that. I think people can recover a lot of function around it and with the cells that remain can build out synaptic structures with them. Um, you can get more the term arborization, like twigs and leaves of trees reaching toward each other. Even if you have fewer trees, you can get more twigs and leaves, you know, with practices. But, um, you know, one of the takeaways uh, from you know, modern neuropsychology is really appreciating the pernicious effects of chronic stress, particularly for an aging population. You know, when our ancestors rarely lived past their 35th birthday. You know, they were grandparents by their 30th birthday. Um, you didn't have to worry about the long-term effects of chronic stress releases. But I've got a little gray hair, you probably noticed, and I see a little gray hair around the room. Uh, you know, we're aging, right? We want to live well, live long. My dad's 91 and a half and still going strong, you know? 90 is the new 70, or whatever, you know? <laughs> 57 is the new 37, whatever. You know, I'm deluding myself, I know, but, you know, healthy denial has a place. So, anyway... <laughs> Point is, cortisol bad, happiness good. All right, that's it. You walk out of here, it's a new rock and roll song, reggae. Cortisol bad, happiness good. Okay, good. So that's the first fact. Um, a little detail, even something as mysterious and remarkable as consciousness is supported by neural substrates. Change those neural substrates, change the brain, you change the mind. You actually can change the nature of consciousness itself. For example, if you want to anesthetize somebody, that's a radical alteration in consciousness, right? Uh, uh, pharmacologically break the connection between the thalamus, which is this fundamental sort of relay stations in the center of the brain, and the cortex. You knock out that main trunk line that, through which signals pass between the thalamus and the cortex, but boom, change the brain, knock somebody out so you can pull out their appendix or something like that. Okay? So now, second fact. This is the useful fact. As the mind changes, the brain changes. In other words, it's bidirectional. Okay? Uh, the mind changes, means information flows change. That leads to changes in neural activity, both temporarily and in lasting ways, as flows of information build new neural structures. For example, temporary changes include if you start, for example, reminding yourself, okay, relax. Mellow out, settle down, ah. You get changes toward more alpha waves and other patterns of neural firing. Uh, 
you also get more or less use of oxygen or glucose in busy regions. And I'm going to give you some examples of that. So this is a picture of, I think it's Mathieu Ricard, who wrote a wonderful book on happiness, Tibetan monk, a Frenchman by birth. Uh, in an MRI, he's looking this way, and the, the slice you're looking at is roughly like that, pretty close to the midline. And the little blob lit up in orange as a marker of increased metabolic activity is called the anterior, which means frontal cingulate cortex which is a part of the brain that's involved in the executive control of attention. All right? So he there in the scanner is tuning into um, boundless compassion, and as a result, he is deliberately paying attention in a tough situation. You know, an MRI, big banging sounds. I've never done it myself, but I've seen them and I've heard people describe it. It's claustrophobic, it's loud, it's weird. You know, he's working hard to just have boundless compassion, non-differential for all beings. You've got to concentrate to do that. He's using that anterior cingulate cortex. It looks, by the way, like the rest of the brain is dark, you know, like this is the campfire in the middle of the forest at night, right? It's only about 2 to 3% more active. But it's a difference that makes a difference, you know, as Bateson said. Okay? That's an example of mental activity, the intention to have boundless compassion and to sustain a focus there is leading to a change in neural activity in terms of greater consumption of metabolic supplies because that part of the brain is busier. Here's another slide of Christian nuns recalling profound spiritual experiences. All right? And um, basically the resolution isn't the greatest in the slide. The regions that are active uh, while they're doing that, and I'll explain that in a second, are superimposed upon um, you know, a, an MRI s- s- slice of, um, you know, a compo- of a single brain. Um, notice three in particular. First, upper left slide, ACC, anterior cingulate cortex. So here we have the nuns who are asked to recall the most profound spiritual experience of their life and to really sink into it. You know, hit the jukebox. Tap those buttons in a really wholesome way. Play that good song. You know, uh, we cue some gospel music right now if we really had it together here. They're really in it. They're in the MRI scanner. Whoosh, they're focusing, they're concentrating. They're lighting up a part of the brain that does deliberate focus of attention. The anterior cingulate cortex is a major target of steadiness of mind practices. If you're working on steadying your mind, which is a fundamental aspect of practice, you're working on uh, the anterior cingulate cortex. Second, their insula. Look at the, let's see, upper left, uh, upper row, one slide to the right from the far left, insula. The insula, as I said earlier, is a part of the brain. It's on the inside of the temporal lobes. It's kind of curled inward. There are two of them. Is a really important part of the brain that is, the, is ground zero for self-awareness. It's very involved in self-awareness, particularly awareness of the body. It does interoception. So, for example, if you're tuning into the sensations of breathing, particularly inside the body, like the sense of cool air going in, warm air going out, or the internal sensation of the chest rising or falling, the belly rising or falling, or the movement of joints in the body, the subtle movements in the body as we breathe, that as we inhale fully, the head tends to move a little, or the hips move a little, and so forth. When we're doing that, we're using the insula. The insula is also involved in um, 
empathy, which we'll get to later. So people who routinely tune into their bodies, A, develop more self-awareness, B, develop more awareness for the emotions of others. Which goes to a larger point, which is that um, if you use the brain in one kind of way, such as tuning into the sensations of the body or controlling attention, you can um, get a secondary benefit uh, in many other parts of your life as well. So tuning in the body helps us be more empathic to others, concentrating with our attention and thereby activating the anterior cingulate cortex also improves a part of the brain that integrates thinking and feeling and also integrates personal memory of our past and projections of ourself into the future. Connecting thinking and feeling is really important. A lot of what personal growth is about or therapeutic practice is about is trying to bring clarity of thought into moments when we're very emotional and similarly trying to bring um, the warmth of emotion and the wisdom of emotion into, you know, just thinking. Okay. So last, these nuns also lit up a part of their brain, upper right-hand slide, and also uh, the left and the top row, caudate nucleus, a part of the brain that's the reward center of the brain. The caudate nucleus also lights up when people are having, um, when they win a lottery, win at a lottery, or... Uh, if they're deeply in love, like college students can sometimes be, uh, they're shown a photograph of their sweetheart. The caudite nucleus lights up as well. So I think it's quite interesting just to reflect on the ways in which these nuns had um, two areas of activation that were distinct from that uh, Buddhist monk. Maybe part of it is that they were female. Maybe part of it is that they were doing a different kind of a practice. But isn't it interesting that when they did their practice, this recalling of spiritual experience, which is probably a kind of union with Christ in that tradition, uh, was very visceral in the body and luscious with reward. Right? It wasn't that, I mean, a Buddhist monk, I'm sure a Tibetan monk would say it's rewarding. Boundless compassion has a positive quality to it. But maybe it was more subtle. And they didn't just get a recognizable signal, therefore, as a result, in the caudate nucleus, given modern technologies, which are still very rudimentary in terms of looking into the brain. It's not to be reductionistic here. It's not to equate or reduce the complexities of, of a profound spiritual awakening to three parts of the brain. But it's to get the main point, which is that as the mind changes, the brain changes. And also, I think, to use this kind of technology to inform our understanding of these experiences and distinctions among important experiences, and including important spiritual experiences. Yeah. Great question. So I'll just repeat it, actually. So the uh, question is, does mudita, which is sympathetic joy, altruistic joy, being, being happy for the welfare of others, okay, does that happiness um, create a recognizable signal, if you will, or activation or increase of blood flow to the reward centers of the brain? I've never seen a study like that, and I, I see studies like this, so I doubt such a study has existed. If you're a grad student or otherwise interested in this area, that would be a really, that would get a lot of attention. You know, that would get a lot of attention. I'm sure it does. Because if you're feeling it, the brain's doing it. It's just that with modern technology, which is really like a primitive microscope, you know, microscopes were invented around 1625. You know, this technology is sort of like microscope technology 
around 1650-1700. Just imagine how far modern you know, biological science and medicine has come in the last 300 years. I just project out, you know, 300 years from now, the possibilities uh, are really pretty amazing. So I suspect that the bottom line is that if you're feeling rewarded, the reward centers of your brain are active. Okay, okay great. I want to keep moving. Uh, in addition to these examples of temporary changes due to mental activity, you know, mind, the second fact, mind changes the brain, you can get lasting changes. And this, in a way, has the most important implications from today. Uh, this means that what we think and feel actually changes our brain, for better or worse. And it does so in a variety of ways. For example, busy regions start getting more blood flow. They're more active in general. If the left prefrontal cortex is more active in association with growing positive emotion, it's going to get more blood flow. All right. Also, uh, there are alterations in the expression of genes. The genes themselves don't change, but the inhibition or activation of them can change. For example, people who routinely do relaxation practices, and meditation is often a relaxation practice amidst other more specific benefits, people who do that routinely get improved expression of the genes that dampen the stress response. All right? And um, it's remarkable to, to appreciate that somehow a mental activity gets down into a strip of atoms inside a molecule of DNA in the nucleus of a neuron and can alter the little uh, proteins and histones and stuff like that that wrap around those genes, opening them up so they can do more work. Isn't that kind of remarkable? Um, I'll indulge myself. I think you'll be glad I did. So I'm going to tell you quickly about a study about this that has huge implications. So, for example... Um, it's, pre, it's generally been understood and thought that mental activity can't change the genes. In other words, if you, for example, are happy, 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 or miserable, miserable, miserable before you have kids, that's not going to change the genes you give your kids, per se. All right? That was the original idea. Well, it's more complicated than that. So here's a study done on rats who have emotional systems very much, fairly like human emotional systems. So they took rats. So there are three generations we're going to talk about. First generation of rat mothers, they separated them into groups, and they motivated, so they randomly separated them, and then they motivated them. They got them in the two groups, one uh, group, and then they had pups, little rat babies, okay? And in one group, those rat babies got tons and tons of licking which is the rat equivalent of, ooh, sweetie, you're the most beautiful baby in the world. Good stuff, all right? Every rat baby needs that, okay? The other group got a lot of it, okay? So the first group was a deprived group, poor rat babies. And then there was the other group, they got a lot of those rat babies were so nurtured, okay? Those rat babies grew up. And now we're just talking about the mothers, okay? This is three generations of, of rat mothers, all right? First generation, you know, they, they, they nurture their babies. Those babies grow up, and those babies, not surprisingly, had better expression of the genes that dampen the stress response. 
they were more resilient. This has a lot of implications, doesn't it? Uh, compared, and similar studies, tons and tons of actually related or parallel studies have been done on humans in terms of children being raised in different conditions. You know, children who are raised in highly nurturing environments become more resilient to stress as a general rule. All right. So now we have the second generation, better expression of the genes. Expression. They have the same genes, but it's better expression of the genes that dampen the stress response. Okay? Then they had babies. Those mothers had babies. The third generation of rat babies that came from second-generation mothers who had better expression of the genes that controlled stress also had better expression of the genes that controlled stress. Controlling for environmental factors, in other words, um, you may not be able to pass on changed genes due to mental practices, but there's some preliminary evidence that we're actually able to pass on changed expression of genes due to mental practices. And that has enormous implications. I'm only aware of one study about this. There may well be others, and I'm certainly not aware of any human equivalent because, you know, but uh, because there are a lot of confounds, but isn't that a provocative and powerful study? Part of what um, gets passed on in the germplasm is um, a kind of marker for uh, regions that have lots of expression, and so that does seem to pass on when the next generation is conceived. Okay. So, if you are in the womb of a person who's been through incredible trauma and the chemicals, the biochemicals associated with that are bathing you as a fetus, you know, then you spend the rest of your life trying to overcome that. Yeah, great point. Uh, both are true. In other words, uh, uterine effects due to environmental effects in the mother's world, combined with whatever vulnerabilities she has personally, let's say, do impact the baby, although that research is always about extreme situations. And I think it's important to not presume that there is simply a linear relationship between um, um, uh, uh, extremes of environmental deprivation or maternal stress mm-hmm. and in, in outcomes on babies. In other words, it, it may not just be that, for example, um, you know, high stress has um, bad outcomes that just simply reduce as the stress reduces. It could well be that high stress has bad outcomes which reduce very quickly down to kind of a baseline, even if there's a certain amount of moderate stress. And I say that because, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan of mothers. And I think a lot of, um, you know, for various reasons, people, some women have difficult pregnancies or difficult life situations. And then, you know, it's like, to use the Buddha's analogy, a second dart. You know, there, there's, that's enough suffering right there. But to throw the second dart of guilt about feeling stressed during one's pregnancy I think is often needless suffering. You know, I, I, there's a lot of buffering. Uh, Mother Nature really worked hard to protect kids. You know, there's a lot of focus on, you know, taking care of those kids, and there are a lot of buffers between the mental life of the mother and the impact on the on the developing fetus. All right, and those effects are distinct from whatever is the case of literally the gene plasm that's transferred 
uh, at conception, prior to gestation, at conception, the transfer of DNA from a mother who has better activation of the genes that uh, dampen stress uh, into her, into, um, you know, the, basically the sperm and the ova coming together. Okay, great points, really good points. Okay, I've got to keep going. All right. So a couple more things here. How does how does mental activity change neural structure? Um, and the famous saying from the Canadian psychologist uh, Donald Hebb, Oh Canada, um, neurons that fire together wire together. All right. Neurons that fire together wire together. They do so in a variety of ways. More active neurons become more excitable. Okay. Um, active synapses become more sensitive. New synapses can get built. I've seen electron micrographs in different studies of literally within 10 minutes, new synapses forming. Got that, you know, Adam and God finger or the twigs and the leaves and the arborization of the brain reaching for each other. And there's also what we talked about earlier in terms of, I think you brought it up, uh, neuronal pruning. You know, use it or lose it, the survival of the busiest. Okay? In effect, what flows through the mind sculpts the brain. And I want to show you a picture of the result of that for people um, who have a mindfulness or meditative practice. Okay? This study was done on people of different ages who had different durations of meditative practice. It was not a longitudinal study. It was done on different cohorts who were then matched with people of similar ages who had no meditative practice. Okay? So the meditators are the uh, blue dots, and the non-meditators are the red squares. And I'll explain this in a moment. Interestingly, measurably, the people who meditated routinely had greater cortical thickness. In other words, they had built out uh, layers and density, greater density of synaptic connections in blood flow in regions of the brain that are not surprisingly associated with meditation. Uh, One is the insula, by the way, that image is a very schematic and blobby picture of a brain, you know, that's looking this away. Um, one part is the insula, that part of the brain we talked about before that's involved in self-awareness, sensations of the body, and empathy for the emotions of others. Second part, number two, executive regions of the prefrontal cortex that are involved in controlling attention. No surprise there. And a little bit of an increase in size uh, in number three, somatosensory strips, just probably nonspecific attentiveness to the sensations of the body. All right? But the takeaway point is that here is one example, and there are many others, where uh, mental activity builds neural structure. And this is the case of meditators, not London taxi cab drivers, or pianists, or other examples that are, that are used, but mental activity builds neural structure. Interestingly, also, it reduces cortical thinning due to age, which I alluded to earlier. The declining line are the normals, if you will, the non-meditators who have lost cortical thickness in those regions. People who routinely have a practice sustain the level of cortical thickness. There's a lot of implications for an aging population. Very few studies have been done on um, dementia and meditation, dementia and religious life. One one study I'm aware of, and there are very few, was done on 85 people uh, uh, in... uh, the American South, most of whom are Christian, and uh, religious life broadly defined, and these are messy real-world studies, religious life broadly defined was associated with about a 15% reduction in symptoms of Alzheimer's. Well, the uh, maximum 
that a good neurologist like my friend and teaching partner Rick Mendias uh, can get with the best of modern medication to arrest the decline of Alzheimer's is about a 15% reduction of symptoms. Isn't that interesting? I suspect a lot of those benefits of religious life in terms of cognitive decline due to aging or Alzheimer's travel through nonspecific pathways like stress relief uh, and good company, right? Um, But who knows what the particular impacts may be. It's interesting also uh, anecdotally that people uh, who are long-term meditators who are autopsied after death um, have had Alzheimer's plaques but no apparent signs of dementia. So they're getting some protective benefits around it. You know, the brain is very complicated, and, and I think a lot of it, a lot of the name of life is, honestly, is workarounds, you know? Um, okay. So, any questions or comments so far? Yeah. These are MRI studies, and yeah. Some people do. So question about MRI studies, uh, spec studies. These are MRI pictures. Uh, Dr. Amen, Daniel Amen, as you know, in Fairfield uses spec. Other people use that technology too. They're different imaging technologies. Um, they all, they're like different kinds of microscopes, you know, and different kinds of filters and things like that. Yeah, they tend to reveal different things depending on what they are. Mm-hmm. MRI, these are basically showing you regions of activity or density. That's what these are. Okay. Questions, other questions or comments so far? I will move this into practices really soon. Okay. All right. A couple more points. Good quote from Marvin Minsky, the godfather of cognitive science at MIT. Uh, Principal activities of brains are making changes in themselves. I think if I could um, invite you into something here right now is a moment of really appreciating that you are the steward of your own brain. You know, you really are. We each are the steward, the gardeners, the landscape architects of our own brain. That what we think and feel, what we rest our attention upon, what we indulge in the back of the mind, really, really creates a lasting effect. For me, it gives me a sense of both awe at the extraordinary complexity of the brain, you know, the, res- the result of shaping across three and a half billion years of life, 600 million years of evolution, right? Like, wow, no one could possibly earn that gift on the day they were conceived. Wow, thank you. You know, like, wow, thank you. On the other hand, for me at least, in addition to awe and gratitude, comes a sense of responsibility. You know, that's been a big takeaway for me encountering this material. It's intellectually quite fascinating, I think, at least to me, and I think to many others. But beyond that, what's the, what's the import? What's the bottom line? And I think the bottom line is really a growing appreciation for how experience really matters, not just moment to moment, subjectively, but for the lasting traces it leaves in, in permanent structures, literally, in the brain. 
an analogy that works for me, having grown up with dogs and picked up a lot of dog dew, um, is to think of the brain as a little bit alike um, a temple. And if a temple dog comes in, you know, into this beautiful floor and leaves a deposit, you come in, it's, it's a little smelly, all right? But then what do you do? If you just leave it there, it's going to leave a stain after a while. So you do what's natural, you know, you kind of scoop it up and move it on to the extent you can, right? And in the same way, if we just leave deposits in our own brain of resentment, regret, recrimination, contentiousness, making cases in our head about other people, in the simulator, I call it, we're running these little mini-movies constantly, little voices in the back of our head, little um, takes, little views, little moods, little feelings, and all the rest of that. If we just let them sit there like dog do, that's gradually going to stain the brain. So I've myself gotten a lot more thoughtful and mindfully aware of what's floating around in the back of my head, and is that really good for me and others? And if not, then I take action, and we're going to be focusing increasingly on the actions we can take to nudge it in a more positive direction. So you might take a moment here to just examine your, your own relationship to the contents of mind. Do you, do you orient to them at effect? Like they're just kind of there, you're stuck with them, they happen to you, you know? Or do you increasingly orient to them, I think as the Buddha clearly oriented to his own contents of mind, as you're at cause. At effect is like being a nail. At cause is like being a hammer. You know, are you at effect or a cause with the contents that come through the mind? And is there a fundamental stance, which we'll get to later, of being on your own side, being for yourself? As the Buddha said, um, I looked throughout the cosmos and I could find no person more deserving of happiness than me. Now, he did not mean that in the obvious way, of, boy, do I rock. <laughs> he meant it in the sense that it's natural for each one of us to really want our own happiness. So if we truly take the Buddha's words literally and adopt that stance, can we each, you know, in a way, make a commitment now to our own personal happiness and welfare? Both for ourselves and also because of the ripples that will spread to other people. I don't think the world is full of people who go around thinking all the time, boy, I really matter so much. I, I matter so, so much. My happiness is number one. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, I really matter so much. I think the world is full of people who are scared and angry, right? And who are also, uh, in a very wonderfully whole, large-hearted way, just really caring and, and about other people. And it's not that we should care less about other people, but I don't see a world full of people who have that inside-out commitment to their own welfare. You know, they don't have, I don't see a world full of people with loving kindness for themselves. And I, I think the Buddha taught that we should have loving kindness for ourselves. 
great teachers teach the same. You know, that's, that's the beginning. And for me, this brain stuff um, makes that point really, really pointed. When you really appreciate in these pictures, you know, that what you think changes your brain, for better or worse, it really brings it home. And regenerating this wholehearted commitment to, you know, undoing the causes of suffering in our own life and in the lives of others every day, renewing that commitment in the heart every morning or as soon as you can think about it, you know, is a very powerful practice and, and feeling it, you know, sinking into it so it's embodied, right? That's a very, very powerful practice. Couple more points and maybe a practice and then we'll have some lunch. Is that okay? All right, great. So, fact number three is a takeaway from fact number one and fact number two. Because when the brain changes, the mind changes, and when the mind changes, the brain changes, you can use your mind to change your brain to change your mind for the better. (laughs) It was understood for a long time that if you did a mental activity here, you'd get a mental result there. In other words, if you put your attention, as the Buddha said, on, let's say, loving kindness for all beings in all directions, you'd feel differently after a while. After a while, like after a few minutes while, and you know, also after a few years while. Mental activity, and then modern science came along. In the last few centuries, it was presumed that mental activity A led to mental result C via the black box of the brain B. Okay? But nobody knew what the dotted lines were that connected mental activity A to changes in the brain B, which led to mental changes C, right? Increasingly now, with examples like, you know, slides like this, it's understood that if we do mental activity A, we get mental result C via neural substrate B. That creates opportunities then for reverse engineering. Because if we increasingly understand what's going on inside the black box, inside the coconut, right? When we're, a person is in a, a, a positive state of mind, like loving kindness or steadiness of attention or um, patience or happiness or tranquility or equanimity or disenchantment or dispassion or relinquishment or um, effort or or concentration, or a jhana, etc. You know, it's all the wholesome states, or all the wholesome states of psycho, you know, in Western psychology. If we increasingly understand what's happening in the brain when a person's in that state of mind, we can then more and more skillfully activate those brain states. And if we stimulate those brain states that underlie the mental states we care about, we strengthen them because neurons that fire together wire together. And that's the essence of self-directed neuroplasticity. Okay. A couple perspectives. Neuroplasticity is kind of a big idea these days. Uh, A lot of people talk about it as if they invented it, uh, as if it's breaking news. It's not. Uh, Anytime we learn something, that's neuroplasticity. Kids learn to walk and talk. That's neuroplasticity. If you remember what you had for breakfast or what you did last summer, right? They kind of... Can you think back more or less what you did last summer? If you can't, talk to me. But no, I mean, (laughs) even if it takes a while. Anyway, you remember what happened, right? That's neuroplasticity. Most 
Plasticity is incremental and small. Occasionally it's dramatic, but most of it's small. What is groundbreaking is not the fact of neuroplasticity, but the mechanisms of neuroplasticity. All right? And as I said, um, most mental activities in the background, what's in the field of conscious awareness is privileged uh, in terms of neural structure building. If we're attentive to it, we turbocharge the formation of synapses. Now, a lot of mental activity is in the field of awareness, but it's in the background of awareness, murmuring in the back of our mind, in the simulator, those little mini-movies. But when neurons are firing, they're wiring. So paying attention to what's in the background of awareness is a really, really important and useful thing. Okay? So I want to talk now about the balance of right mindfulness and right effort uh, and just offer a few perspectives kind of quickly. And then let's open it up for some discussion, then have a practice, and then lunch. Okay? So if you think about it, there are three places to intervene in life. We can intervene out there, right, in the world, in our the people we live with, our relationships, our job. Um, you know, we could fix the leaky faucet that's driving us crazy. We could talk to the neighbor about the dogs that are barking. We do what we can out in the world. We vote for different people. Uh, you know, we move and so forth. Second domain of intervention is the body, physical health. Body is very important. Um, I'm, you know, I've really appreciated the power of hardware as a guy who's a psychologist and really into software. The body really matters. Protein with every meal, getting enough sleep, eating good vitamins, watching out for toxins and allergens, stuff like that, uh, taking you know, one's health really seriously, exercise, etc. Those are good domains of intervention. And then, of course, we can intervene in the mind. Right? Now, all three are important. Sometimes people talk as if one's more important than the rest. I think they're all really important. All that said, if you think about it, our efficacy, our capacity to influence things out in the world and in our body is fairly limited. And it's often uh, situation-specific, okay? Whereas what we do inside our mind, um, particularly with some practice, we have a lot of power over what we do inside our mind, and we take our mind with us wherever we go. Okay, so it's in that context here that I'm going to focus. I'm not uh, ignoring poverty, racism, oppression, or, you know, the craziness of modern life, but I'm just saying, in addition to whatever one can do out there, there's what one can do in here. Okay. Next, um, the Buddha really was big on right effort. And if you read this, uh, you know, this is taken from the right effort section of uh, the Dharma. Uh, a recurring phrase is, look at the words here, generates, generates desire for the non-arising, in other words, the ending of unwholesome states of mind. The word evil there isn't particularly moralistic. It's really meant pragmatically. They have bad impacts, okay? The person makes an effort, arouses energy, applies the mind, and strives. That reminds me of, who was that Richard guy with the hair and the short shorts who does, like, exercising, jumping up and down. It's, yeah, that guy. You know, it has a little bit of that quality to it, but it's, it's really good to kind of hit those words. This is the Buddha taught, telling each one of us, this is how to do it. You want to be completely happy? This is how to do it. You've got to make energy. You've got to make effort. You've got to strive. Okay? That's wise effort, which isn't always really appreciated. I think sometimes when people just mostly practice with just being there mindfully with things, which takes us to what I think of as the three great phases of spiritual practice. 
So um, a traditional saying is know the mind, shape the mind, free the mind. And that very interestingly and kind of loosely but interestingly maps to the three great pillars of spiritual practice in Buddhism of mindfulness, virtue, and wisdom. These are hallmarks of Buddhism. They're also hallmarks of other traditions. Uh, I have a friend who's a professor of Christian contemplative practice and a, and a minister as well. And he says in cr- Christian contemplative practice in different traditions, sometimes they use words that are very close, if not exactly the same as mindfulness, virtue, and wisdom as the three fundamental pillars of practice. I don't think that's an accident because mindfulness, virtue, and wisdom map to three fundamental functions of the nervous system. Mindfulness is about receiving and learning. In other words, the nervous system receives inputs. It receives signals and it learns as a result, including structure building. That's mindfulness because um, that learning is highlighted, it's turbocharged when there's mindful attention. A second main function of the nervous system is regulating. In other words, finding a good homeostasis around a, a good set point, a good equilibrium around a good set point, and then staying within range around that set point and operating around that set point within range in ways that are smooth and not chaotic and, and highly disturbing. That's regulating. That's what the nervous system does. Well, that sounds a lot like virtue to me. Restraint. That's another word for sila, restraint, virtue. Restraint, containment, you know, keeping it here. That's regulation, right? Not going out of bounds. Regulation. That's virtue. That's the virtue pillar of practice. And then last, the wisdom pillar of practice maps really well to prioritizing or selecting. Or as I said earlier, choosing a greater good over a lesser one. That's the essence of wisdom. Basically, it's making choices that draw on learning and regulating to take ourselves down the path of awakening. Now, interestingly as well, these three phases or as pillars of practice map to what I think of as the three phases of growth. And I don't think it's an accident that there's such tight parallels here. Any kind of growth or spiritual practice, in my experience, has three basic phases. The first phase is that we, we be with what's there, right? We notice an anger that arises, or a dog leave, an inner dog leaves a deposit, you know, in the temple of the mind. There it is. <laughs> there it is. We be with it. We practice mindful awareness. We hold it in as much spaciousness as possible. We do what Pema Chodron says. We stay with it. We bear it. We don't do what is natural to do, which is to suppress it or disown it or get mad at ourselves for having it. We let it be. It's there. All right? Now, that is a fantastic practice, is it not? We're all in this room because we've benefited from that practice. Simply being present with, simply allowing, simply being mindfully surrendered to what is there. But is that enough? Sometimes it is. Sometimes just being with what's there is transformative. Besides carrying all kinds of implicit secondary benefits in, in terms of growing our capacities to be mindfully present. All right? But often it's not enough. And that's where wise effort comes in. You know, 
the Buddha made it clear that there's more to practice than just the Satipatthana Sutta, just the four foundations or four applications of mindfulness. There is also wise effort. And that takes two phases. After we've been with, with, with what's there for a reasonable amount of time, it's appropriate to let go of what's there if it's unwholesome or causing us to suffer or ruining our meditation or ruining our day. To gently ask it to move on. There are all kinds of technologies for doing that. Arguably, most of Western clinical psychology is about the second phase of practice. Okay? It's about technologies of letting go through venting, emotional release, towel pounding, primal screaming, uh, sending, writing letters you never send, writing them with the left hand if you're right-handed. I've, I'm trained in these technologies. Cognitive ones, where we argue against uh, wrong thoughts. You know, we dispute wrong thoughts. That's cognitive therapy in a nutshell. Um, technologies of relaxing the body. Imagery, you know, feeling like we're floating in fluffy white clouds or a beautiful mountain stream is washing our sorrows away. I'm not making fun of these. I'm just listing them. They're all really good. Okay, they're great technologies, whatever they are, okay? That's the letting go phase. And then after we've released, we've got to replace. There's an opening there. And then at that point, we let in, we take in the positive alternative to what we've released. Or summarizing these three phases in six words, let be, let go, let in. For me, understanding where my mind is in terms of these phrases, has been very helpful to my personal practice. It helps to appreciate what your tendencies are. I was a second phase guy for a really long time. Difficulty comes up, eject. (laughs) I don't like that song. Break the jukebox. (laughs) You know, get a new jukebox. Get rid of that song. Practice for me a lot has been about, you know, working on that first phase. Being okay with it. Learning to stand it. Learning to stay with it. Um, on the other hand, I've known people who get glued in the first phase. They get Velcroed to, they get gorilla glued to their sorrow, their pain, their anger, their recriminations, their regrets, their resentments, their remorse. They're stuck there. Right? So know where you are. A second thing that I've really come to appreciate is the importance of replacement. And that's a lot what we're fo- going to focus on after lunch. How do we replace what we let go of? How do we grow flowers? Uh, the second phase is weeding, right? First phase is you stare at the mess of your garden and go, wow, be with it, stay, <laughs> bear. Wow, is this a messed up garden? Stay, bear. But after a while, you get in there and you start pulling weeds. <coughs> but most important of all, grow flowers. Flowers gradually crowd out the weeds. That's the third phase of, of practice, okay? I think the greatest Dharma story of all time is... Goldilocks and the three bears. Because practice is all about the middle way, right? Not too hot, not too cold. Not too hot, not too tall, not too short. Not too hard, not too soft. There's that just right sweet spot. We usually know it inside our mind where we've done the first phase long enough. We've been with it. We've hung out with it. We've been spacious around it. We've mined it. We've had insight about it. We've double-checked our tendency to suppress, disown, and, you know, we've done, we're, we're cool. All right, already. Now it's time to move on. And different things, obviously, I have different timetables. If there's a tragedy in one's life, of course, that move-on phase might be years long, right? But, you know, on the other hand, um, sitting in practice and 
having some nagging worry arise about some email that wasn't done correctly the night before, right? I don't know. 30 seconds, 3 minutes, 10 seconds. It's not very productive anymore. It's time to get that little bit of dog do out of the temple of the brain. Okay, so for me this is a useful way to understand this question of, you know, why is mindfulness is really in the first phase? Why is effort is in the second and third phases? Although they intertwine. Sometimes we need to go to the third phase of taking in resources to enable ourselves to bear our experience in the first phase. So, for example, if something comes up that's just so upsetting or really, whoa, wounding to us or this uh, very self-critical part of our mind just starts jabbing at us, you know, little demons and some Hieronymus Bosch woodcut, you know, of hell. (laughs) You know, when that little yapper starts going, sometimes what works then is to go to the third phase and bring in a felt sense of being with others who care about us. You know, a teacher, a mate, a pet, the divine, a spirit, whatever. Bring that in, and then that enables us to bear, to stay with, to be mindful of whatever it is we're we're being with. Okay, any comments or questions about this? Yeah, right there. The mic over there? I've got the mic with you. Oh, good. I'm trying to understand a little bit more about um, the mindfulness virtue and wisdom. And... Is this correct? If I were to apply mindfulness to letting be and virtue to letting go, that's a virtuous thing. Loosely. And, okay, yeah, and then letting in would be wisdom because it's wise to be um, aware of what is important to let in, whether it's a dog or that. Is, would that be correct? Yes, and I think of, of the mappings, that's the, most, that's the one that's the biggest stretch. I think there's a loose relationship. I mean, letting be is, I think really pretty saturated with mindfulness. We're mindful of letting go, and we're mindful of taking in, right, replacing. But it seems to me mainly associated there. And the virtue is where, honestly, we we take a stand against unwholesome qualities uh, or or contents of mind that harm us and others. And and that would be part of the letting go, is to be able to discern correctly Mm -hmm. where to let go. That would be a virtuous quality. The wisdom would be in prioritizing and, and letting in what is um, yeah. appropriate and positive. That's right, and gradually inclining ourselves toward a better way. You. You know, that's exactly right. You got it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, right there. Um, I encounter often people that want to meditate, but they say, I can only sit for five minutes. They have difficulty tolerating the affect, the emotions, mm. and that's, that's why they quit. Yeah. Um, so how would you, are you saying that you could skip and tell them to let in and then go back, you know, and gradually build? Yeah. But, but in my experience, it doesn't really work. There's a whole section of the population that's disenfranchised from, you know, even opening the door or going sitting for even a few minutes. So how do you help, how do, how do you offer that to them? Or, or yeah. Okay, so a question about, um, uh, which I'll respond to briefly, about uh, helping people who meditate a little bit and, don't, and, for example, it's not that they can't concentrate and they get frustrated, but that they, they open up to self-awareness. Meditation is self-awareness. It's, the problem is self-awareness, not meditation, right? They become aware of what's there, and it sucks, 
right? It's just like, hey, <laughs> yeah. right? Okay, okay, very understandable. Obviously, where we start is is seeing ourselves there too, and having compassion. Like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, from a practical standpoint, I think it helps to be completely willing to adapt practices. It's interesting that the Buddha laid out, probably if you think of all the specific suggestions that were discrete that he offered, it's hundreds and hundreds. If there was only one that applied to everybody at all times, he would have given only one. Right? So right there, de facto, implicitly, is a communication that different things work for different people, and it's appropriate to be nimble and resourceful and, and innovative. Right? The Buddha was a great innovator across 40 years of teaching. If he'd lived for 40 more t- years, do you think he would have stopped innovating? I mean, so there's a place for innovation. We, we don't want to be silly about it, but there's a place for it first. Second, uh, I think there's something that um, is not really a main focus here, but there's neurological diversity. Okay? Most forms of diversity that society cares about are uh, largely artificial. They're, 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 they're their import is largely um, artificially constructed. The import of skin color, sexual orientation, the, the actual objective, innate impact of that is minimal to zero, right? But the impact of neurological diversity is huge in terms of temperamental spectrum, okay? Uh, in partic- um, and it's not that, obviously, sexual orientation doesn't have a huge impact on a person, you know what I mean? But if you think about the range of temperament, that's very consequential. And people really range, uh, including um, people. Some people are fairly cheerful in their disposition, and some people are more, are more melancholy. So my point here is to appreciate neurological diversity and adapt practices for what people need. Some people truly, they need to do walking meditation for five minutes. That's it. Um, with music. You know, <laughs> because they need a lot of stimulation to be quiet. Uh, the extreme version of that was this child I worked with whose mother finally figured out when he was about six or nine months old that the only way she could ever get him to sleep through the night was to buy a television set, put it on a sort of benign, like a cartoon station, and leave it on 24 hours a day. That's the only way he could sleep. He needed that much stimulation in order to calm down and sleep. All this said, a, a few specific ideas. One is to encourage people to focus on something benign, like gratitude. It's hard to lose the gratitude. You know, there's always something you can find. And, to, and they say, well, it just makes me think of all the things I don't like about my life. Natural. Appreciate that. Then say, okay, but attention's like a spotlight. Right? It illuminates what it rests upon and then <laughs> sucks it into your brain. Because neurons that fire together wire together, particularly under the spotlight of focal attention. So getting control of your attention is a very important skill. It's one of the most important skills of all. How do we control that attention? And so being able to shift that attention away from thoughts of what's not working about your life to thoughts of some of the good facts in your life, which we'll get into later after lunch, is a really important skill. So if thoughts of bad things come up, just say thank you, and then go back to what you're grateful for. Your pet, a flower, this day, someone who's been kind to you, a simple good quality in yourself, a pretty picture, whatever it is. Practices of gratitude, I think, are wonderful. Or pick something that is uh, a subtle, um, pleasurable body sensation. 
and just keep going back to that. Breathing is pleasurable for most people, not for everyone, but for most people. Sensation of breathing is pleasurable. You know, that again is a good object of attention. And these are, you know, okay, I'll just leave it at that. All right. But the, the last thing I would just say is this. Um, being a therapist for a long time has made me a lot nicer, but it's made me meaner. What I mean by that is that it's made me tougher-minded. You know, I just see a lot of people putting a lot of effort into stuff that doesn't matter very much, really, to themselves, let alone the world, um, and not much effort into stuff that really matters a lot to them, like their skillfulness in relationships or with their own thoughts and feelings. And I'm prepared to be fairly direct with people about, you know, um, this has to become important to you. If it matters to you, you do it. We do what we value, right? And if this matters to you, you'll make some effort here. The scale of the effort is five to ten minutes a day. Or as I, I encourage people, make a solemn value that, that you'll always meditate every day, one minute or more. Right? <laughs> and it's okay. I've had days where the, I realized, oh, my God, I've got to meditate. And I meditate for a couple minutes before falling asleep. But, you know, I meditate a minute or more. Usually more. Okay. How about we do a practice? All right? So I want to do a practice on... Taking in the good. And then we'll move to lunch. And this is, so, um, today's a lot about the good news, all right? Uh, There's a typo in this slide. If you look at savor the positive experience, sustain it for 10, 2, or 30 seconds. That should be 20. Okay? So, these are the first three steps to taking in the good. After lunch, we'll get into the fourth step, which has more clinical implications, as well as Um, uh, implications for healing painful experiences or painful residues in implicit memory. But right now, we'll just do the first three steps. And we'll do it, um, I think, probably three times, uh, which only will take about five-ish minutes or so. So the first step, so I'll explain it, then I'll walk you through it. Okay? First step is to let a positive fact become a positive experience. Lots of times in life, there is a positive fact, right? Something good has happened. Uh, we folded the laundry, we got something good done, someone has been nice to us, or there's just simply a good condition in the world. Uh, you know, our, uh, our roof has not fallen in that day. Uh, the, you know, the schools kind of work. Uh, you know, um, you put food in a microwave, you push a button, it gets hot. It's kind of neat. I mean... There's a lot of stuff to be grateful for, honestly. There's a lot of good facts out there, including good facts of our own good nature, perhaps the most important good facts of all to pay attention to, our own good qualities. We don't need to have a halo to have, to have good qualities of patience and determination, grit, good-heartedness, and so forth. So instead of doing what, we, what people commonly do, which is they notice there's a good fact, maybe dimly or even acutely, but then it doesn't move the needle. right? They don't respond to it. Instead of doing that, we let ourselves respond. We let ourselves have a positive experience in response to a positive fact. That's the first step. The second step, then, is to really savor and relish that experience. As any school teacher knows, if you want to promote learning, you want to have what people are learning uh, be as intense as possible, be as multimodal as possible in the body and experiential, and last as long as possible. At the level of building neural structure, it's pretty mechanical. You know, intensity, duration, and multimodality are the three main factors of neural structure building. So we want to really relish it. You sink into it 
and really savor it, okay? No one needs to know you're doing it. You can keep a poker face, but deep inside, you're trying to help yourself feel as good as possible for about 10, 15, 30 seconds in a row. And the third step is to sense and intend, kind of simultaneously with savoring and also afterward, that this positive experience is sinking into you. People do that third step in different ways, like imagining water into a sponge or a golden syrup coming in that's warm and soothing, sinking down into the crevices in the body-mind. Maybe something going into your back. If you relax and open the back, things will come in there uh, because we tend to brace our back against life because that's where threats come from, you know, in our evolutionary past. Okay? These are the three steps. So let's play around with it. So first, let's do it. Pick a good fact, maybe something that you're grateful for. This is a, so this practice, you're both being with what, you're trying to work with things in your mind, you're trying to do things in your head, but you're also being with what's happening, you know, as you learn about it, okay? So you're both doing the practice and observing all the stuff that happens in your mind while you try to do the practice. Okay, so the first step, let some good facts become good experiences. And then the second step, really sink into this good experience. It's a kind of concentration practice where you gently bat away everything else and open to and intensify and become absorbed in some kind of positive experience here. Meanwhile, the third step, sensing and intending that this positive experience is sinking into you. Okay. You did it. So that's taking in the good in a nutshell. Any questions about how to do that practice? I should say two obvious points. First, uh, it's natural for the focus uh, or the, the prominence or intensity of the positive experience to crumble and then to be regenerated, perfectly natural. It's also perfectly natural for negative experiences to simultaneously arise. The brain works in sort of yin-yang kind of way, yin-yang kind of way, and uh, so it's natural for the thesis, as it were, to constellate the antithesis, as it were, you know, the opposite. The thinking about light creates thoughts of dark, right? Um, very natural, 
The trick then is to simply, as I said, like a concentration practice, acknowledge the, the negative experience or the, or the resistance to the positive experience or the doubt of the positive experience, uh, and then go back to the positive experience. Okay? So, questions about how to do this at all? Okay, let's try it. Up. Yeah. Great. The question is, so if you're listening to yourself in that way, is that sort of like the neurological change affected that you describe in your book when somebody compassionately listens outside of you? Love the question. Uh, Question is, if you're um, listening to yourself in that way, or in a sense you are um, being with something positive in yourself, are you in some ways giving yourself the experience that you would have if some other real person were listening to you or being with something positive in you? The short answer is yes. The longer answer is that it varies a little bit. For example, um, being mindfully present with, in other words, that first phase, letting it be, being with it, uh, particularly combined with a stance of self-compassion, really is giving us, deep down, a kind of attunement that is a good analog to the attunement that others, like caregivers, like mothers give babies or fathers give children, whatever, um, um, are getting. And it's interesting that um, uh, being on the receiving end of that kind of inner mindfulness can really help heal, over time, uh, misattunements in childhood. You know, shortages of empathic attunement uh, when uh, and or compassion when we were kids. Okay. In particular, when you're doing this practice, what you're honestly doing it's like a little bit of a push-up for the 20, 30 seconds. You're just marinating in well-being as much as you can, and that's more of a concentration practice. So I I don't think that so much is giving us that kind of inner empathy benefit. But even there, there is a lot of um, are there a lot of, I think often the main benefits for things are the tacit ones we don't pay attention to. Like to do this practice, you've got to be for yourself. Right? right there, you're building neural structure of being for oneself, which a lot of us could use more of. Okay. And so let's try it again. Now on this one, if you, and you don't have to, but I'm going to suggest that you pick some spiritual factor that you're working with these days and would like to encourage more of in your own psychological and or spiritual practice. Like, for example, a person um, might these days might be really working on the experience of compassion. Or they might be really working on the experience of, um, you know, a kind of even-keeled calm in the face of life's difficulties, right? Or they might be working on, um, you know, the, the, an attitude of generosity, kind of the, the open hand, the open heart, okay? So, or personally, or uh, the sense of inner strength. Inner strength is really important. And it's, it's underrated in Buddhist practice, I think because it's just implicit, but it's really important to call out the sense of strength, um, being resolute. 
right? Determined. So, okay, get a sense of that. So come, bring to mind, if you can, some wholesome factor or quality of mind you're working on these days or would like to have more of and see if you can play with the jukebox and call to mind that experience of whatever it is. Compassion, patience, inner strength, generosity, whatever it is. Think of things that remind you of it or bring up a memory of when you felt it. Or imagine what it would feel like if This is the first step. And all the while doing the second step of savoring, relishing this positive experience. Even exploring and getting into some of the nuances of this positive state of mind. Meanwhile, the third step, sensing and intending that this positive state of mind is sinking into you much as you are sinking into it. open to a sense of confidence that this spiritual faculty or power is increasingly a part of you. Okay, come on back. It's okay to keep relishing and savoring these positive experiences. You see the three steps, right? They kind of weave together, but there's a distinction. I think we're kind of on a roll. Let's do another one. Now this one will be a bit of 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 a stretch perhaps, it's uh, Vipassana. You know, what's the name that's written on the outside of this building? I think right on this wall, Insight. Okay? So let's, ex- let's play around a little bit with bringing to mind an important teaching or insight. 
It could be something that recently has just really uh, is, a, is a remember this for yourself or perhaps is a phrase or line that you have, has been so important to you that you've typed out or written out and put on a little yellow sticky near your desk at home or something, you know? Or maybe it's been a realization lately or a teaching that's really hit you or it's an important idea or word, right? Um, one for me, and deep in the Dharma, is really appreciating impermanence, the felt sense of the transience uh, of everything. Right? Transience. Uh, another idea might be something like um, connection. We're all utterly connected and intertwining with everyone else. Or maybe an insight is something very real, like when I get mad, I create harms for me and others. As the Buddha said, getting angry with others is like throwing hot coals with bare hands. Both people get burned. Or just, or something really practical, like realizing, don't talk to my partner if I haven't had dinner first. <laughs> or don't move past the weather and, you know, out of how the San Francisco Giants are doing until I've had dinner. Okay, so bring to mind some kind of insight and then see if you can get kind of a felt sense of that insight, not just a conceptual understanding. Let that insight really be there with you. And then explore the second step of really sinking in to that teaching, including sinking into the experiencing of that teaching, that truth, that that good wisdom for you. Letting that understanding, that knowing, fill you in this second step. Surrendering to this truth without reservation, without resistance. Exploring what it's like to give yourself over to the truth of this truth. Meanwhile, the third step 
sensing and intending that this truth is sinking into you just as you are sinking into it so that it is increasingly a resource woven into the fabric of your brain and your being that you can take with you wherever you go. Okay. I think that's bhavana, you know, we're cultivating, right? That's cultivation. And then Inspired to swing for the fences for the last time. Let's do this one more time, okay? And we're, again, we're just playing around. It's, it's okay to be playful inside the mind and innovative and explore. So this time, think about something that you want to encourage yourself to do more of or less of, right? That's real, okay? Uh, whatever it is. Um, go to the gym more often, or, or on the other side, do less bristling with exasperation with your partners or people in your life. Or you want to motivate yourself maybe more to, to meditate more often or for longer periods. Or uh, make uh, uh, an important but scary phone call. Or be more disciplined about certain kinds of negative mind storms that you know you really could just sort of take a stronger stand against in a way that would be healthy for you, whatever it is. Right? We, we usually know what's the growing edge of our life, our practice. Um, if we listen to those who love us the most, they usually have a little list that's <laughs> correct about how we could really become a little bit of a better person. So we just imagine that list and listen to it. You know, what would we do? Okay, so pick one thing and then get clear in your mind about what some of the rewards would be of changing in that way. And that's how I'll talk about it. So, right? You get the idea? So you want to identify a wholesome change. Could be a very small one. Could be a big one. And then in particular, identify one or more rewards that will come to you from that change. And by reward, I mean it could be events. But I mean in particular, what, what's rewarding in what is uh, what's rewarding in your experience? I'm talking about rewarding experiences. Right? So identify what could be some rewarding experiences associated with this change. So let's do this. Now we're in the first step. Identifying one or more rewarding experiences that you anticipate or reasonably hope to have or know you will have, including from history perhaps, past experience, Rewarding experiences associated with a wholesome change. In the first step, identifying that experience, that rewarding experience. And then moving into the second step of 
starting to really get absorbed in that rewarding experience. If, if only one you imagine. Really savoring how good it could be to make this wholesome change. Maybe imagining different kinds of rewarding experiences that would come from this wholesome change. And meanwhile, the third step, sensing and intending that these rewarding experiences are sinking into you, gradually inclining your mind toward this wholesome change. Okay. So those are four little examples of um, different practices a person can do around taking in the good After lunch, we'll explore um, different ways to take in the good. Most of the time when we take in the good, it's not like we did here. In other words, we don't sit down and go, okay, I'm going to think of some good news and feel good, right? There's a place for that, right? For example, research has shown that what's called the three blessings exercise, uh, in which before we go to bed, um, we bring to mind three things we're, we're grateful for or we're glad about, has a huge impact. Um, they don't actually, interestingly, get into the detail of this method. I think uh, some people who do that practice are just naturally doing the three steps. I didn't invent the three steps. You know, these three steps are really, I think, at the heart of many, many therapies and many paths of personal growth and spiritual growth. Um, I think it's just useful, on the other hand, to call them out and be very clear about what one's doing. But most of the time, we're going to do these three steps in the flow of life itself, right? Just when things happen. So as we take lunch, you don't have to do this. You can ignore it entirely. But I encourage you to be like Velcro for good experiences over the period of lunch. And notice what it's like to just imagine yourself as a sieve for positivity. You know, it doesn't mean ignoring the, the, the dark side of life. It doesn't mean suppressing anything. But it means continually focusing on what are the good facts. Okay, click. 
What are the good experiences that are available to me? Particularly ones that you know are food for your particular soul. One other thing we'll get into after lunch is um, specificity of particular antidote experiences that are uniquely important for individuals given their own individual psychology. Like, for example, a person who's had a a lot of experience as a kid uh, with independence and autonomy, yet who had a lot of other experiences as a kid of being left out or unwanted, myself, uh, you know, experiences of autonomy today aren't that, they're good, but they're not food from, they're not the vitamin I need. The vitamin I've needed, which I've mostly internalized, um, is the felt sense of belonging and, and being included and wanted. Um, okay? So we'll talk more about different antidote experiences. And so even during lunch, you can really, really particularly open up to experiences that you know are really, really good for you. Okay? As well as open up to good food and good company.